0: Hello, and welcome back to the future of figure skating. My name is Anna Keller, and today's guest is Ryan Stevens. Ryan is the author of three reference books about figure skating history and the fantastic resource that is the Skate Guard blog. A former figure skater and judge from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Ryan also writes for Skating Magazine and U.S. Figure Skating. I've appreciated Ryan's interest in all corners of skating history, especially the figures who have been forgotten by the mainstream story. This conversation gave us a chance to talk about why things are the way they are, the processes of change, and our hopes for the future of the sport. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I've really been enjoying the Skateguard blog for a few years now, and yeah, excited to get to discuss some skating history and different topics with you today. Thank you so much for having me. This is
1: quite fun to be on the Future of Figure Skating podcast when all I write about is the history, so I think it'll be really, really interesting.
0: Starting off, though, I wanted to ask you how you got interested in being a skating historian the way that you are in your background. So I was a competitive skater in the 90s. I did artistic skating with
1: some singles, too. Absolutely loved it. And then I did some judging. And then I was away from the sport for probably a decade or more. You know, always a fan and wanted to get involved again. So I decided to start a blog. And when I did, I was doing exactly what everybody else does. You know, writing about what competition is happening this weekend, interviewing skaters. And while I loved doing that, I was also just throwing in uh, historical articles here and there. And I found that I enjoyed doing those so much more. So I just wanted to focus on that because it was something different that other people really weren't doing. So just trying to fill a niche.
0: Yeah, that's great. And so now you've written two books, is that correct?
1: Three. So I've done three reference books and really enjoyed doing that. It's definitely been a learning curve. And I'm actually working on my fourth right now. But we'll talk about that more later, because it kind of ties into some of the things I think we might be talking
0: about. And do you have you know a background in history doing this outside of skating? Or has this the skating led you to this?
1: The skating has led me to
0: this. You know, when I was younger, I was
1: always... I mean, that was long before the days of YouTube. And I was always curious. You'd read these names in books. And a lot of times, there wouldn't even be a picture of them. And I was always curious, who's this person? Who's this person? And I think my curiosity uh, just led me to go down the rabbit hole of, of learning more about skating history. And what I found so interesting about it is just that, A a lot of the history that's out there isn't absolutely correct. And B, the history that is correct, there's always more to the story and there's always more to learn. So I, I just love kind of um, going back to those primary sources and finding out what the real story is, because usually it's a lot more interesting than the story that we you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And I think, you know, growing up in skating in the US and getting skating magazine and those things, I feel like I had this very US centric view without even realizing it, that my sense of like the different eras of competitions and the different parts of skating just is so tied to like, which honestly, like which US woman skater was that the era of? And so it's been interesting to then think there are other lenses to look through the progress of this sport than just that, um, that kind of was how I was introduced and taught it.
1: Well, do you know something? It's funny you said that because I feel exactly the same way, only I've always looked at things through a Canadian lens. I mean, you think of oh, this is the era of Kurt Browning, this is the era of Elvis Stoico. And I think we always just associate different decades with different skaters. But I think we all tend to look at skating through the lens of our own country.
0: Yeah, well, it's natural. So one of the topics, obviously, that I've been very interested in is skating and gender. And so my understanding is that the division of competitions, as we have them today, that we have a men's and a women's discipline and that. Um, for so much of modern history, the women's discipline has been the most popular. That's not always been the case. So when skating competitions started, were there men and women competing together or separately? And how did that develop?
1: So in the early days, uh, figure skating was very much a sport for people that had money, people that also had time at their disposal, just to, you know, the time and the money to go to Switzerland for four months in the summer and skate because that's what they felt like doing. A lot of the first champions didn't really have jobs per se, they were just kind of gentlemen or ladies of leisure. And in the very early days, if you go back to the late 19th century, most of the competitions were just men. There was the odd competition for women, but it really wasn't until the Edwardian era in the early 20th century when women really started competing. Now, Madge Sires, who won the very first Olympics uh, in 1908, really was a pioneer, but she wasn't the only one. There was a small group of British women that were all entering international competitions around that same time and competing nationally against men. In the British championships and the Canadian championships, pretty much right until the First World War, uh, men competed against women. And what they would do, at least here in Canada, is they would pick, they wouldn't give, announce, you know, what the marks were for everyone. They would pick the best gentleman skater and the best lady skater, quote unquote, and give them a prize. And that's how it worked. But the men and the women were competing against one another. When Madge Sires came around, that was when the ISU was forced to address the issue. And there were it was all kinds of silly logic that was used at the time. They said that men couldn't compete against women because maybe there'd be a, a man on the judging panel that, you know, was somehow interested in them, or maybe their, their dress might be distracting to the judges. <laughs> Keep in mind, this was the Edwardian era, and those were the mentalities of the time. It sounds so silly now, and it is so silly, but that was just the kind of logic that prevailed in society around, you know, back in those days. I really wouldn't say that skating really became the woman's sport or a sport that was so often classed as a woman's sport until the 1930s. You had Sonia Henney in that period, who was a huge international star. And you also had some amazing skaters from Austria, Sweden, Canada, the United States. Uh, the first Japanese woman that competed at the Olympics competed in the 1930s. And right after the Second World War, you had Barbara Ann Scott here in Canada, who was a household name. So stars like Sonia Henney and Barbara Ann Scott were really the ones, I think, that propelled the sport in a direction that it really became so popular for women,
0: mm-hmm. and was that some of the idea that then, as it became more popular for women, were there still men competing, you know, in the same amount, or does it that go with a, it becoming less popular for men? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think if you go back and
1: you look at the actual results, I mean,
0: in these early competitions,
1: there were the same number of men and women that were competing in, in, in each discipline. I think that those numbers started to drop around the late 30s and the 40s. And what I think is wild, I did an article quite a while ago, and it was just kind of talking about the attitudes towards men's figure skating at the time. Mm-hmm. There was a ridiculous article that ended up in a paper where they were accusing Sonia Henney Um, because of her very flashy style and that she had all these men joining her ice shows, they were accusing her of making fancy dance, that's what they called them, out of the men that became involved with figure skating. And then there were also books at the time that started talking about figure skating being a quote-unquote sissy sport. And you would see these newspaper articles and passages in books around the 30s and the 40s. So I think that these kind of very coded anti-gay kind of attitudes that were around at the time probably kept some men from joining the sport
0: it's interesting though that in one sense that those attitudes have been around in the sport that long and also that they weren't necessarily there from the beginning either so that i don't think they were
1: i really don't think they were no
0: How has the progression of technical difficulty happened in skating? Is that something that happened steadily over time? And the idea of sort of jumps as being how we measure technical difficulty? Or are there particular points in history that have or factors that have really driven that forward?
1: Well, I just finished writing a book about technical merit about the history of figure skating jumps and I think that my biggest takeaway from doing that research is that the hyper focus that we have now on jumps that in a way is because of the system that's being used to judge the sport now that just wasn't the thing decades ago keep in mind back then. Figures count it for more than free skating it. So that's one factor. But even in the free skating, it was about having a well-balanced program. So if you look at even in the 1970s, that was really the decade that triple jumps really exploded. If you go back and you watch those performances, especially in the early 70s, you'll see people doing single jumps double jumps and triple jumps. And it was very deliberate. They might do a one foot axle, then they do a double flip, then they do a triple south cow, then they do a mazurka. Like it was all about having a variety of different jumps and spins in your program. And it wasn't really about the difficulty of them. I think when the quads, when the triple axle, that was a huge thing. And that should never be downplayed either because that was really the barrier in the 80s, 90s, and it still is today. But the quads coming in I think that that was really a factor that changed things drastically. I think there's always going to be that effort to do more and, you know, to do the impossible. And we just saw a a quad axle happen. I never thought that would have happened. I I don't know how many more we're going to see. I think it's really, really cool. But I don't necessarily think that jumps are the be-all, end-all. If a skater has a good balance of the technical and the artistry, look at someone like Nathan Chen. Great example. Able to do both. And I think if you're able to do that, that's how the sport should be progressing. I don't think that just doing a hooky cutter program with a lot of quads is necessarily very appealing to watch for anybody.
0: Yeah. And I think in some ways, Ice Dance forces us to look differently at what is technical difficulty, too, that we take it as synonyms for difficulty equals more revolutions in jumps. And there are certainly other things, but we've chosen jumps as the way we measure that. I always think we take it for granted so much that I have to keep reminding myself that that is a choice that we have made. It is a choice. And what an
1: excellent point.
0: In that debate, art versus sport, is that something that's been in skating since those early days when it was this elite rich people's sport? Were they also arguing about art versus sport back then?
1: I think back then there were certainly skaters that were very art minded that viewed skating through that lens in the twenties and thirties you had uh, champions like Gillis Grafstrom, who really was all about creating you know these special figures on the ice and was all about approaching skating with a very artistic point of view and Certainly, like decades later, like if you look at the 70s, I, I really consider the 70s to be the era of artistic skaters. You had John Curry, uh, Taller Cranston, Janet Lynn, Robin Cousins, Dorothy Hamill, uh, that were all skating during that period. I think that when the 80s rolled around and all of these technical barriers started being broken... But you still had, if you turned on the TV, you could watch, you know, taller Cranston skate in a television skating special. And then you could watch Brian Boitano, who was also, that's a bad example, because he was very artistic too. I'm just trying to think of, like a Victor Petrenko. And two very different styles. I think that that certainly led to more debate going on about the art versus sport. But that's something that's been around since the beginning. It's never going to go away.
0: So we mentioned a little bit about some of the, class origins, but how have ideas of race and class impacted what's seen as good skating or skating that's valuable?
1: Well, I've got a lot to say on this subject, so so buckle up. (laughs) Um, So I think that race has played a huge role. I love that there's been so much work that's been going on, but I think that the associations have some wonderful trailblazers from skating's history who are not being appreciated. And the way that you appreciate those people is induct them into your uh, into your halls of fame. I have to say, um, Skate Canada doesn't have a single person of color in their hall of fame. I can think of at least six people who would be amazing candidates for induction and they've never been inducted. Someone like H.Y. Wilson, amazing skating pioneer down in the States, also hasn't been inducted. So I, I really think that it's important from a historical perspective that whoever are on these induction committees need to be considering diversity because it starts with your history. It really, really does. And when you're recognizing those trailblazers and you're celebrating them and celebrating their stories and contributions to the sport, it's going to draw in more people. That I think is such an important thing that needs to happen. That's part of my rant. Part two is that I think television played such an important role in popularizing the sport, but it also perpetuated that whole ice princess stereotype. And we've seen so many great champions through the sport, but we're not seeing enough effort being put forward by the people that are televising the sport to tell stories of people of colour. We're just not seeing that. And even if you look back at some of the language that was used to describe skaters of colour by television commentators over the years. I watched a video one time And it actually might have been on that special on Netflix where they were talking about the language that was used to describe Sri Avanali's skating. Mm. And it really makes you think. I think that there's been great work that's been done, but there's a lot more that needs to be done to make the sport more inclusive.
0: Yeah, in the US, there's been a lot more attention um, given to Mabel Fairbanks recently, which has been really great great to see. And also you would be forgiven for thinking that she was the only, maybe until Debbie Thomas, that she was the only black skater, the only skater of color. And I know that's not the case. And so it's like, yes, we want to hold up our heroes, but not picking only one person to celebrate.
1: I interviewed the son of a man uh, named uh, Joseph Vanterpool, amazing pioneering skater from down in the States. He performed on ice at the Apollo Theater, which is wild. Back in the days of Mabel Fairbanks, and I have some great pictures of him, in his skates, and I'm really excited that I was able to share that, that story, and I hope I can share more. But I really think that once again, it's important that whoever is in charge of halls of fame and, you know, and the ISU Skating Awards or whatever you want to call it. I think that it's very important that they really make diversity a huge part of what they're doing.
0: One thing you wrote about recently that I was interested in, you recently had this post about pro-am competitions that were more common in the 90s. And, you know, we don't have a lot of those these days, maybe bits of that legacy with things like the Japan Open or dancing on ice, I guess. But why aren't we seeing that as more of a part of the sport these days? Is that just something that we saw in the 90s?
1: So it was certainly not something that we just saw in the 90s. So a lot of people think, because when you turned on the television set in the 90s, there were probably about three pro competitions every week. That's what it felt like, at least. I loved it. But I think people think that's when it all started. Professional competitions actually started back in the 19th century. They were huge in England right up until the early 70s. Then there was a second uh, pro competition that went on for decades that was held in Spain, of all places. So there were tons of these events around for a really long time. However, there was so much oversaturation after television promoters kind of went nuts about with what happened in 1994. You know, they realized that there was money to be made in professional skating and they went completely overboard. There weren't set rules for these competitions. They varied from event to event and the professionals didn't like competing against the amateurs and the amateurs didn't like competing against the professionals. And to be perfectly honest that was the silly part about about those events and probably the reason why they failed was because the isu became involved and wanted to make them pro-am competitions hmm. if you're catering vet and you won the olympics in 84 and 88 and you can do one triple why would you want to compete against michelle kwan who can do five triples it, not really very fair both amazing skaters But you need to have some sort of a level ground, you know, maybe make a rule that you can do two triple jumps or something at maximum. But basically, the ISU's involvement in those events and the oversaturation on on television were what killed them. I think that it would be really, really short-sighted to think those kinds of events couldn't come back in the future. But if they were going to happen, it would take someone who had money and it would take you know, maybe a streaming service or a television station willing to invest in that and commit to it for more than one year or one season or something. Uh, And I think that events like that really, really could come back. Because as it stands right now, when a skater wants to stop, that's why you see skaters competing for so long, because they, they, they don't have another competition to go to once they're done with the Olympics. So... I think it takes the skaters getting on the bandwagon for something like that to come back. But I think it also really takes money and people behind the scenes to make that happen.
0: I think that certainly skating fans could be incredibly excited. But we know that like the skating fan world is not large enough to sustain that kind of a a budget. It has to appeal to a general audience as well.
1: Well, I I agree with that, but I'll also say... General audiences, that's why pro competitions did as well as they did because of the fact that easy to understand, you know, if someone didn't know a thing about skating, they could understand someone getting a 10 or a 9.9 or or losing a point if they fell or two points if they fell. I think the simpler you make it, the more general audiences are going to be able to uh, be responsive to it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the skating community is so small. I think it, it would be challenging to find that audience as well.
0: You know, you've mentioned a few people here, but I would love to know more about some of the individuals that you've learned about that you'd like to see more widely remembered in the skating community.
1: Well, I've got three people that I'd love to talk about a little bit. One is one of my favorite characters from skating history. Her name was Isabella Butler. Isabella Butler. She, long before there were actually the U.S. championships that we see today, there was a competition run by a different organization called the Championships of America. She applied to compete in this event back in the uh, Edwardian era, early, early uh, 20th century, and was told no. So she decided to turn professional. She toured the U.S. uh, skating on tank ice and like in these vaudeville style shows. She also joined the, the Barnum and Bailey Circus and did this thing called the dip of death so she would drive down a racetrack and that was like elevated in the air then there'd be like a break in the track and then she'd land on the other side in, a, in some sort of old-timey car so this was a thing this woman was absolutely ridiculous and i think that she deserves all the attention in the world uh such a cool story I think Madge Sires was also such an amazing and interesting pioneer. She I mean, she was the first world champion, first Olympic gold medalist, first woman to compete against the men. She was also a swimming champion and was involved in a, a ton of other outdoor, dorsy kinds of things. She was into canoeing and just such an interesting woman. And uh, I think, the unfortunate thing about her story is that she died so young during the First World War, so it didn't get a lot of attention at the time. But I think that more people need to learn more about her story. And that leads me to uh, the third person I want to talk about. And full disclosure, this is the person that I'm writing my next book about. One of the most interesting people in the skating, and I don't think that anybody uh, who's ever become involved with the sport hasn't heard this name And his name was Jackson Haynes. He was really considered the father of figure skating. He went over to Europe and he toured all around and very popular in Scandinavia, very popular in Vienna, as well as in Russia. And the thing that I've learned from researching his story, which I can't wait to share with everyone, is that I'd say about 70% of the things that we think are true about his story are absolutely not true. But the real story is so much more fascinating. It's actually quite shocking. The problem is a lot of what was written about him was first written in the early 20th century. And all of the authors after that didn't actually do their own research. They just repeated what the earlier authors said and added more and added more. So it kind of became a myth. But if you go back to the primary sources, which uh, which is what I'm doing, I'm just really using 19th century sources for this and kind of throwing everything from the 20th and 21st century away. And oh my gosh, so fascinating. A Victorian era trailblazer that changed the sport uh, in more ways than people think.
0: Oh, cool. All right. Well, that's that is a great teaser for your book, because now I, I, I want to know what was so, so shocking and interesting. It's juicy. It. It's juicy. <laughs> <laughs> No, I always think that that's like, you know, skating is full of such interesting personalities now that I just have to imagine that that was always the case. And you see those pictures of people, you know, wearing long coats and looking so stern from those 19th century, early 20th century pictures. But you know that they have to have been just as eccentric and interesting as so many of the personalities now.
1: There have been some very eccentric and interesting people in in skating history. And I think the people that we have now, I'm sure 100 years sure someone like 100 years from now will go back and we'll say, Keegan Messing, who is this? He's quite the character. I mean, but we yeah. have lots of characters skating.
0: So, one of the other things that I, you know, themes that I'm particularly interested in is you know, how change has gotten made. You know, in skating over time and, you know, you've written about a few different people who have pushed back against judges or against federations and succeeded or not in their own time. But so, just curious about your perspectives on how have people been able to make change where they've seen it necessary in the sport? I think there are a lot of
1: skaters that have made change. I don't think that there are a lot of skaters that have made change during their competitive careers. And it's really quite simple. I mean, how much agency does someone have when they are in a way reliant on building a good relationship with not only their own national association, but with, uh, with international, you know, with the international skating community as well. I think tying back to what I was saying earlier about professional competitions, when people could go, when they had a different world to go to and they could say whatever they want when someone put a microphone in front of their face, you know, and, and there are certainly a lot of skaters that have, I think that that's really, uh, that that's really affected a lot of change in the sport. Um, because they're removed from it. But now, if someone wants to stay involved with skating, even if they're done competing, if they want to be a commentator, if they want to be a judge, if they want to be a coach, they, they've got to play the game, you know, to some degree. And that's just how it works. I think that it really takes someone who doesn't care what the consequences are and, and is going to use their voice and, you know, and is going to be loud about what they have to say to affect change. And I think that there are some very, very amazing people who are doing that right now. I think we're seeing in the skating community, perhaps more than ever, we're seeing uh, some very strong voices making some very loud points about issues that are happening in the skating world. And I love to see it. Want to see more of it.
0: That point about the power that exists within the Olympic the ISU, the national federations and that system that there really isn't much outside of it. I mean, there's bits and pieces of artistic skating and um, professional companies, but it's very, very small outside of that space. And it's interesting comparing it to other sports that are professional sports where there are players unions where the athletes have a lot more power you know we often try to draw the comparison I think to tennis because as an individual sport that there's some comparison but the size of the opportunities for athletes and their relative power in the sport is so different than it is in skating it certainly is
1: I think you're really
0: going for that to change I think that you're going to have
1: to see the pendulum swing back at some point and in a professional speeding world come up in order for that voice to be a lot louder than it is. But I think a lot of good work's being done. I really really do and I love to see it.
0: So you had an article after the most recent Olympics looking at some of the history of doping in the sport going you know beyond the most recent scandal, but what some of that history has been. What do you feel like you learned from looking into that, that you were particularly interested in?
1: Well, I'll tell you something. When I did that article, I didn't even want to do it, but I felt that I should do it. And I'm glad that I did do it. It was really heartbreaking to learn about some of the things that happened, quote unquote, behind the iron curtain decades ago But I think that it's also important that people know those stories. I can't speak to what's necessarily happening right now. I I don't know that any of us can 100%. But I will say the one thing that I remember something, I remember saying something along these lines in the article, and I feel just as strongly today, just because you can't prove something doesn't mean that that it didn't happen or doesn't mean that it isn't happening. And, you know, I, I come across things like that all the time when I'm doing historical research. I might not be able to find something that doesn't mean that it wasn't true. I think that, quite frankly, when you have one skating association, which hasn't been, I, what has it been the last two, three uh, Olympics? They haven't even been able to compete under their own name. It's been the Olympic athletes from Russia or the, the Russian Olympic athletes. I don't know. They change yeah. the name every single time. This has happened twice already. Like, a- enough is enough. Maybe I'm, I'm very naive, but I think, you know, we look at what's happening with the war in Russia right now. They were pretty much ready to be kicked out anyway over the doping thing at the Olympics. Like, they found a reason to get rid of them, but the original reason should have been the reason anyway. I think that there needs to be... We, they don't even have these Olympic medals given out yet. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I think that... If the system that they have right now is allowing that to happen, it's time to change the system. It's absolutely bonkers to me. Maybe the only way to deal with these kinds of issues is to, to you know, to have it as soon as something like this happens, have some sort of a case manager aside to it, a human being assessing the situation practically and, you know, and saying, okay, what's the real story here? And these kinds of things could probably be solved in three months if that was the case. But the process is they're just so drawn out and they're not taking into account the impact on not only the person that's being accused of doping but all of the other clean athletes yeah the impact on them and the kind of message that that's sending to young athletes that are coming up in the sport about what's okay and what will be tolerated i i, I just think that, oh it's just a yikes it's a huge yikes
0: i think in some ways that olympics it's such a dark part of the sport. And it really, I think, pointed out many other dark parts that I was feeling very depressed after the last Olympics. And I had to look and see, you know, all of the different ways that there are people trying to make the sport better. And that was a big part of why I wanted to do the podcast in the first place, because starting to unpack all of the ways that the issues around abusive training connect to the doping, connect to the politics of the nationalism of it, connect to issues around weight, like all of these overtraining through injury, just like all of these different dynamics tie together. And so I actually really appreciated that you started that piece and looking at this history with gators in shows who were forced um, to weigh themselves and use some diet pills because that's also a form of doping that we don't often talk about in the same it sure is
1: it sure is and that, that was a thing for for decades a huge part of the sport and these the people that that went through that a lot of those people are coaches today they heard this from the adults when they were barely adults you know This is what they were told to do if if they wanted to make it in skating. And I I think it's all about the message that's being sent to the skaters that are coming up. And I think the thing about that article, I know it was the first time that I ever wrote a blog. And I footnoted the entire thing to death, like I was doing a thesis for school. Uh And I went through it with a fine tooth comb, because there's not a single thing that's in there that hasn't been fact checked. So it's in black and white. Uh, if people haven't read that, I encourage people to read it because it's 100% true. It's a thing. It's not yeah. my opinion. It's a thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's so important to be able to have that record when we're talking about things that for a variety of reasons are very much not in in the public eye. But we like you said, there's probably more because just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. But for to have the actual record of what we do know is so important. And you know what? I I wish that, I wish we did know more because I think that
1: maybe this could have been stopped a lot longer ago, but people are talking about it now. um, And I'm hopeful that people get some medals soon because it's been over a year.
0: Yes, it has. On a different and possibly happier note, I wanted to ask you (laughs) a little bit about the spread of skating outside of the places we think of it originating in North America, Western Europe. You mentioned a Japanese skater in the 1930s. I'd love to know a little bit more about what you've been able to find out.
1: Well, I've tried my best to kind of go as international as I can. it's hard when you're dealing with primary sources that are in, in different languages. I speak English. I wish I speak more languages, but it's, you know, it's a tricky time. But I do try to, to celebrate as much history outside of English-speaking countries as much as I can. But what I think is so interesting is we think of skating as just being a European and a North American thing. But it's also been in other parts of the world for a lot longer. Australia had ice rinks uh, back at the turn of the century as well. South Africa had its first ice rink, I think it was, gosh, around, like, just after the First World War. And uh, Japan has had, I actually have, a, I have a, a skating directory from, like, the 50s or 60s listing all of the rinks in Japan, and it's a huge list. Skating has, uh, has been, been more of an international sport for a really long time. But what I love seeing are countries that have never even had representation internationally. Uh, have have started to have that, especially in the in the junior circuit over the, the last ten years since they've brought the junior grand prix. What's been around for longer, but it's really kind of got a lot more attention in the last ten years or so. I'd say. Like I just did a piece on Egyptian skating history that was super interesting. The very first skater from Egypt competed on the junior grand prix circuit this year, and I, I think that's so neat. We're seeing a lot more skaters from Cyprus as well. There was an ice dance team at junior worlds that were so much fun that were from cyprus and i i I love seeing the sport take off in parts of the world uh that it hasn't uh, previously so that history is all out there uh it's being made right now too
0: yeah that is so cool i'm hoping to talk to more folks on the podcast who are involved in bringing skating to other parts of the world because you know i also feel like i It's easy to gravitate toward English speaking and North American folks here, but I would really like to make sure that I'm having more of those conversations. But um, one of the things that I found absolutely the most fascinating and I would love to know more about is the history of the development of skating in China that I read the book, The Second Mark, that looks at the history of um, the Paris team. You know, the lengths that people went to to try to understand technique and when they didn't have the coaching, figure out how to reinvent it for themselves and came up with their own totally different technique for throws. And just, you know, the determination that it took for people who were really lots of other dynamics that went on there, but just people who were really, really passionate about the sport and wanted to make it work. And also, I think about how many federations or skaters that are trying to develop now may have things to learn about what to do or not do if they have better understood some of you know if we have more access that history of what it's looked like for people trying to build skating in places where it hasn't been a tradition.
1: Oh, what amazing points you just made! And I I, and I think too you have to feel for some of these smaller federations because they don't have the coaches, they don't have have the money, and but also. With some of the smallest federations, there's such enthusiastic people that are are really working so hard to try to build up those skating programs. So there's a lot of good going on. I hope that those federations can get all that help and support that they need.
0: Yeah, definitely. The competitions I know that I had the most fun going to this year were I went to the Nepola Trophy and to the Grand Prix in Sheffield. And in both cases, there was that feeling of like, every single person involved in the sport in this country is like here making this competition happen and they drafted in all of their friends and relatives and like it had such a warm atmosphere to it um and that sense of like determination to pull things off and just real pride in their own skaters and just like that was a really really lovely atmosphere in both places and so I love seeing that and I think you know, whatever external support is necessary to make it happen, it's really great to see bringing some of those competitions to the smaller federations also and definitely encourage people to go to those and experience that. I think it's wonderful. My last like question that I had prepared for you to ask a little bit also about some of how attitudes toward music and costumes have changed over time as well I mean we've had quite a bit of change in the last couple of decades in terms of what's allowed in competitive skating but I was curious if there's anything in that area that you might want to comment on
1: well I kind of specialize in the era where if someone was showing a little bit of too much ankle that might have been seen as a little bit risque so um, I will say that I I think it's hilarious that I think that it took as long as it did for men to be able to show their armpits and women to be able to wear pants. I love that someone um, had to really think about why that should should or should not been allowed. Absolutely silly. But I think that a lot of it's generational too. The people that make the rules, make these kinds of rules, are usually old enough to be these skaters' grandparents. So they might have different values about what, what a quote unquote sporting costume is. And that's fine, but it's just kind of a bit much. As for music, personally, my opinion, um, I love that skaters can skate to lyrical music, right? You know, music with lyrics. I know it was really a contentious issue for a lot of people. I think it was a really, really good change. But I think that there's a whole world of of music out there. I I think it's kind of unfortunate that what you see happening now with a lot of the skaters that are picking uh, music with lyrics for their programs, they're not even doing the original version. They're just doing like a weird cover. Mm-hmm. and like not even like a good cover or you have like a coach like just saying, oh you don't know what to skate to where you're gonna skate to um i don't know andrea bocelli singing something by queen it's just some of the music choices are just very unusual i think as you see more younger coaches and choreographers coming up and skaters choosing to have more of a voice about what kind of music that they pick you're going to see more variety than you do now, I sincerely hope so, because some of the choices right now are just are kind of odd.
0: Yeah, in both music and costume, it's definitely an interesting thing to me that we end up with these trends or traditions of these choices that are neither actually traditional or conservative in some ways, or modern or cutting edge. They often get stuck in some weird in-between, like you said, of cover versions of things or the idea that it would be risque for a man to wear tights but it's perfectly okay to have you know all of the illusion mesh in the world and later it's like all of these things that like such inconsistencies that these things only make sense in the context of skating and you try to explain the logic to somebody outside of it and it's like what
1: (laughs) here's a fun one for you okay this ties in with music and costumes It, it involves hair actually in like the late 90s, early 2000s. Do you remember the French ice dancer, Wendall Pizeras, uh, who won the Olympics? Yeah. yeah. He had this long flowing mane of hair. He looked like Prince Charming or something. After that, there was like a four year period where every male ice dancer had to grow this long mane of hair. And like 90% of them looked absolutely ridiculous, but they all did it. <laughs> and... But you see that those kinds of trends with music and with costumes. It's just, I think they're often like decisions that are made by coaches or choreographers. They're saying that look seems to work or that music seems to work. So why don't we just do that? And that's why you end up with all these Queen medleys.
0: We're never going to be done with Moulin Rouge, apparently. Well, you know what?
1: The one Moulin Rouge that was the best ever was Tessa and Scott. And anything else, will never top that. So I'm sorry. Thanks for (laughs) playing. That's what I have to say about that
0: there are some warhorses that i don't mind i have a soft spot for four seasons programs some of them are terrible but i think there's so much good music there you could you can always cut something i actually like the music too it's actually
1: pretty pretty.
0: (laughs) but there's other things that are just we really cannot do i had an argument with on the recent competition recap that i did with anything goes about the music starry starry night vincent program like i was just like I can't stand that song and colleague Sarah loves it. And so we had to have, you know, have an argument about it. I was like, immediately it makes me dislike the program. She's like, immediately it makes me like the program. So, you know, these are the I, things.
1: I hadn't watched the movie. The first time I heard that music was when, um, uh, I think it was when Piper and Paul skated to it. Mm-hmm. I think that they were the first. So they did that program. And then, you, and then everybody was doing it. And I was just like, this is just too much. I wish people would just, there's such amazing music out there that, there are whole, there are whole song books of brilliant artists that have not even been touched that would be great for skating. I could name about 10 off the top of my head. Uh, so if anybody wants good music for skating, come see me.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> Clearly there's a need for it. So uh, there is. Yes.
1: That'll have to be my side gig.
0: When in those early, early competitions, has there always been music as a part of free skating? Has that been there since the start?
1: So music has been there from the start, but not in the way uh, that we would think about today. So at the very first Olympics, how it worked, was they just said, okay, your time. I think, I forget how much, it was like way longer. It was like 10 minutes instead of five minutes. It was wow. a free skating time. No one had a program that was set to music. There would just be someone, there'd be a band on the side, you know, a five-piece band or something, that would play, um, you'd probably ask them, do you know this song? And if they knew it, they'd play it. If not, they'd play what they... But they did know um, at the 1932 Olympics, the band only knew one song. So everybody skated to the same music. So those kinds of things went on back in the day. And there were always issues because someone there was a a Canadian skater that went down to do a carnival down in the States. And he told uh, whoever was the lead, the band leader or conductor, I guess he told he told them what song he wanted to skate to. They played a completely different song because that's what they thought it was. That's what it was called down in that area. In that community, they was, it was known by a different name. So there were all these wild mix-ups back then. Oh, but getting back to what I was saying, 1908 Olympics. There was a band on the side that was playing music. You skate it for around 10 minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. And then they just they rang a bell or a gong or something when you were done, when the time was up. And they judged what they saw. That was a free skating program. So it was it was really just uh, background music. It wasn't really until the 30s that people started making a program to music.
0: Interesting. You know, speaking of the slow pace of change, I still have to laugh about how long it took to get that your music wasn't required to be on a, a CD, and that that had to take like multiple ISU congresses to allow for USB stick. I always think you know it would be fun though to have. Speaking of like music mix-ups. I do think that it would be fun sometime as you know part of a gala or you know show or something that they should make skaters all switch music or draw things out of a hat and just be like go you all right this is your music improv on the spot please and like make everybody like mix it mix up and see what people would come up with on the spot I think it would be very entertaining
1: it happened so in the in the again in the 90s love the 90s um one of those pro competitions was called the improv And that's what they did. They put, they just put, uh, I think it was Robin Cousins that organized that. And they put like six songs in a hat and everybody had to draw one out and just skate on the spot. And it was hilarious because you had skaters that always did classical programs and had to do like techno. And then you had skaters that always did pop music that had to do country. It was really, really, it was very interesting to see. I'd love to see it.
0: I think that would be super fun. I would love to see what, Some people would do if if you force them to just go totally outside of their (laughs) comfort zone. Sometimes you get little bits of that in like warm up groups when you see people like, you know, there's some skaters who kind of can't help themselves and they start skating to whatever music is on and you get little bits of like, I'm glad to know that it's nothing, nothing new under the sun, but I think, I think they could bring that back. I, I love it if they did. I think it's fabulous. So, Ryan, you've talked a little bit about what your um, upcoming book is, um, which I'm super excited about. But where can people find the books that you've published and give a little uh, where people should find your work?
1: All right. So, the first place you can find it, you can find it on my blog, uh, Skateguard Blog, which is skateguard1.blogspot.ca. Uh, you can find my writing in uh, US Figure Skating's uh, Skating Magazine. You can also read my three books. I've got they're all reference books, so they're nerdy little books you can refer to if you want to learn a fact. They're not, you know, they're not something you might want to, you know, relax with a glass of wine in the patio. Do they're not that kind of a read. So the first one's called the Almanac of Canadian Figure Skating. Uh, it's an encyclopedia of Canadian skaters, and it has the results from the Canadian Championships going back to the very beginning. The second one's called the Bibliography of Figure Skating. It's just a list of very rare skating books of over a century's worth. And where you can find them and the third is called technical merit a history of figure skating jumps and that talks about the history of each jump who did what first how the changes in the judging of jumps came about there's all kinds of really really unique rare facts in there that i think that if you're a skating nerd like i am um and and you probably are if you're listening to this podcast yeah. uh i think that it's something that you might enjoy and you can get them on uh, amazon You can also get uh, the Almanac and Canadian figure skating on Barnes and Noble.
0: Great. And definitely um, I will link to all of those resources and to some of the um, specific blog posts that we talked about on the show as well. I always like to close by asking people, um, what would you like to say that we, maybe that we haven't talked about or that you'd want to emphasize about making skating healthier and more inclusive? And so you have, your historical perspective but also from all of your own experience in the sport as well
1: from a historical perspective please if there's somebody that you want to nominate uh to the uh skate canada or the world figure skating hall of fame or the isu skating awards something like that if if there's someone that you want to nominate to be more inclusive reach out to me i can help you with getting that material together to to help get that nomination uh started i'd love to help with that Secondly, another really important change that I'd like to see in this sport are just more people speaking up and not being afraid to share their stories. I love that in the last five or so years, you see so many more people that are talking about mental health in this sport, that are talking about their challenges with disordered eating as well in the sport. They're sharing their stories and they're hard discussions to have, but we need to have those discussions. Um and there's going to be support out there for you if you have a short story that you have to tell that's not an easy one. I'm never, uh, I never cease to be amazed with how many wonderfully kind people there are in the sport. And it might not feel that way if you're going through uh, a really, really hard time in the sport, but there are people out there that do care and and reach out if you need support.
0: Yeah, I agree completely, and I love seeing people who have come out of their competitive career and we're able to say, you know, these are the things that were hard and these are the th- ways that I still have love for the sport and be able to talk about the people, you know, that both the hard and the good parts of the relationships with the people in the sport. And I think that it takes a lot of courage to tell those nuanced stories as well. And I'm really glad that so many people are finding the ability to do that. And we've got some just really great examples recently that hopefully will inspire even more people to do it.
1: And really, it is something that's so inspirational. Some of these stories are so heartbreaking, but I have such respect for anybody that can, that can find that courage because it's not easy.
0: Yeah, and it makes a big difference to know that, that you're not alone. And it's even when you look back at people's stories in earlier eras of the sport, it's that kind of dual, on the one hand, I wish that we hadn't had so many people and, you know, generations of skaters who've had to deal with some of these things. It's far past time that they changed. And on the other hand, it's also good to know in some ways, I think about this, looking back at the history of queer people in the sport in particular, that it's good to know that there have been people all along. All
1: along, all along. And sadly, a lot of those stories... Don't ever get told because, especially from the early days, I can tell you that there are, I know some wonderful stories of skaters that have long since passed on who didn't want their story shared because of the era that they lived in and took those stories to the grave with them. And I wish I could share those stories, and a lot of them I can't.
0: That is, I mean, think about how many people were not able to share their full selves, you know, while they were alive or even afterwards. Ryan, thank you so much for this conversation and for all of your work. Your blog is such a just treasure trove of amazing stories and ways for us to keep learning about the sport.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love doing what I do and I love what you're doing too. and And I can't wait to see what you're going to do next.
0: Thanks again to Ryan for coming on the show and for his work uncovering and preserving skating's history. You can look at the show notes for transcripts and links to all of the many fantastic blog posts that we talked about. You can follow Ryan on Twitter at SkateGuardBlog and at SkateGuard1.blogspot.com, where you can also pre-order his upcoming biography of Jackson Haynes. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. If you appreciate the podcast, you can also support my work with the tip jar at futureoffigureskating.pinecast.co. Remember to subscribe to the Future of Figure Skating on whatever platform you use, leave a review, and share it with your friends.